um, the gentleman of that family is the one who pulled me out of the wreckage. Wow. Um, because he was looking for his daughter. So I was on top of his daughter who, who she had 90% um, burns and smoke inhalation. Today's guest is a plane crash survivor, burn survivor, as well as a renal failure and kidney transplant survivor. At age 10, she survived a plane crash in which she lost her immediate family and sustained 45% burns to the face and body. Decades later, she had a last rites read when her kidneys failed and survived serious transplant complications. Now alongside being a coach, she's an international keynote speaker and a Pilates rehabilitation specialist. Episode 74, Tulsi Veggiani. Welcome to One Moment Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Well, thanks, um, Tulsi, for coming on and uh, doing this. We, I obviously connected, well, I don't know if it is obvious, I connected with you because we mutually know, well, I've interviewed um, Anastasia, I always pronounce it's Greek, so I always pronounce, I always butcher everyone's names. Um, and she was amazing. I had her on the podcast and she's absolutely incredible. And when I asked her 12 months ago if there was anybody that she could recommend me having on the podcast, your name came up. So it's taken Aww. about 12 months to get you on. You're very busy and, um, and so forth. But uh, yeah, I'm really thrilled about having this, having this chat with you. Well, thank you for inviting me, Fiona. Pleasure. Now, you are an amazing burn survivor and Thank I'm you. keen to understand your story. When I spoke to Anastasia, she was, it was a car accident and yours was a plane crash. So talk to me. Mm-hmm. Are you happy for me just to launch into your story in regards to um, the situation? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, mine was a plane crash. Um, so, yeah, like age 10, you know, happy-go-lucky child, um, had this opportunity to go to India with my family as part of a holiday. And, you know, never being on a plane before is all exciting. Uh, we've reached India. Uh, my dad's visiting his granddad, whom he'd left 23 years prior. So only ever having spoke to his, uh, my great-granddad on the phone, to actually see him there was amazing. You know, we had such a great time. We had um, lost our luggage at the time. So back then, rewinding 32 years ago, we had to go back to Mumbai to pick up our luggage. So my parents decided, well, whilst we're there, let's start touring the south of India. So where we live in India is the west coast. So um, when we were going to Mumbai, uh, me and my brother very much fixated on the fact that we were going to go Goa. Because we just thought India was Goa, you know, just beaches and palm trees. So <laughs> that's what the brochure told us anyway. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, we were we literally thought we we're going to be going Goa. But what did your and parents, because uh, your parents have Indian heritage, so what did they? What, what were they telling you about India before you went? I mean, surely they were so, saying it's not palm trees and coastlines yeah, all the time. Yeah, I think it was that. But I think where they brought the brochure home, it was kind of more about these are the kind of places we're going to be visiting. Getting you excited. So, getting us excited but my dad had always told us the reason he was taking us was he wanted us to experience life because we've got you know good privileges privileges here in the UK in that 
you know, we got what we wanted. We were never short of anything. It was a food on the table, a lovely house, clothes, you know, the whole package. Um, And he wanted us to experience that not everyone is fortunate like us in getting all of those things. And but then showing us that they also are happy, even though they don't have things that we do, but they are happy. And we were, we just couldn't, I guess, you know, age 10, sort of philosophy of life is pretty much lost on a 10-year-old, really. Mm. But um, we're like, yeah, whatever, we're just going to be going Goa, you know, so <laughs> we'll go along. Um, yeah, so we got to Mumbai, they're booking all the, you know, excursions and everything. And we thought we're going Goa. Anyway, we heard this word Bangalore sort of in the air, but me and my brother, we just thought it's somewhere in Goa. You know, we didn't think it's a separate city or anything. So we got on this, well, we got to the airport and we've, you know, we're told we're going Bangalore. But we were like, oh, yeah, that's in Goa type of thing, you know. Um, My parents are like, no, 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 we're going to go Goa later. So I remember me and my brother really reluctantly wanting to get on the plane. It's almost like, what? We're not going Goa? Like, where are we actually even you going? You lied, you lied. Yeah, you tricked us. <laughs> so it's like, you know, reluctant got on and it's then we've been told we are going to be going, but we're going to go Bangalore first and then we'll be going Goa. So, okay, fine. Then I'm fighting with my brother on the plane because he got to sit by the window, which just really knocked me off. And <laughs> Typical you know, sibling stuff. Exactly. And the, yeah. the fact that he was younger than me, he always got his way. You know, it's like the older one's like, well, you should know better. You're older. And it's like, well. No, I was the youngest and my brother always got his He still does. Always gets his own way. <laughs> oh, that was so lucky. But yeah, in my case, it was the other way around. So, um, yes, yeah, so, you know, obviously in Australia, you get blue skies and everything. I mean, we have got blue skies here in London at the moment. But obviously, it was rare. And out of the plane you know you can see the blue skies and the green fields and for me it's like wow just so fascinating and then I hear my grandmother's voice but my grandmother is the one I've left back in the UK sort of two weeks prior to the incident so I'm like whoa why is she on the plane I didn't see her at the airport but what she's telling me is not sort of matching what I thought. So she's telling me, like, look, Dulce, you've been involved in a plane crash. That mum, dad and Gumlesh, which is my brother, they are no more. And that you look different. So in that roundabout way. But I, in my head, she's come on the plane to surprise us. So what she's saying obviously didn't register. Um, in and out of sedation in hospital. And then I hear a young medic's voice is telling me, uh, hi Dulce I'm gonna be taking care of you um, all the doctors and the nurses are on the airfield attending to casualties but don't worry I'm going to take care of you so again now that voice is quite foreign obviously it's not a familiar voice so I just thought he's an air steward who's just taking care of me on the plane like I don't know why but he's taking care of me on the plane so I'm still on the plane in terms of my head space obviously but body I'm in hospital um, between that time of my accident to returning back to UK was just a matter of a few days. I'm so okay, back. so let's go back to the accident. What actually happened on the plane? So I have no recollection of actually what had happened on the plane in respect of here's me fighting with my brother. 
And then the next thing is I hear my grandmother's voice. So in terms of the plane actually hitting the landing, so as it was landing, that's when it hit. So it, it actually hit in Bangalore itself, uh, landed, sorry, and it must have bounced a few times from what I got told, and then it finally sort of crashed. Uh, the front part of the plane was pretty much uh, the wreckage, you know, that was gone. The back was pretty much saved, so to speak. Um, and where yeah, were and you guys a, sitting? We were towards the front, so, yeah, so we were quite close to the front. Um, so, yeah, in terms of that period between me fighting with my brother to hear my grandma's voice, must have been 24 hours, if not a little bit more, maybe, because by the time my grandparents would have got to India, would have probably been the next day, or early next day, um, and that's all I've. That's all I know. So then I'm flown back to the UK, and with another family who who were on the plane with me. <clears throat> um, the gentleman of that family is the one who pulled me out of the wreckage. Wow. Um, because he was looking for his daughter. So I was on top of his daughter, who, who she had 90% um, burns and smoke inhalation. So that's how I caught the flames. Um, having never met them before, we I didn't even remember seeing them in the queue or anything. But yet now they were so familiar, you know, it's like, because we've been through something so big. So mm. anyway, I came back on the air ambulance with them. I couldn't see at this point, so it's just voices. So hang on a minute. I just want to. So when you're saying came back on the air ambulance, that's from that's from Bangalore to the UK. That's correct. But how did you? How did they know that you're British? How did you get from Bangalore to the hospital and then get triaged and sent over to the UK? What What was that process? So all of this I got told a lot later. So it wasn't yeah. anything I knew earlier on. Um. So from the plane, uh, from the airfield. Uh, I was transported uh, via ambulance to a local hospital in Bangalore. Uh, so from what I know, some casualties went to another hospital in Bangalore and I went to another one. So um, I was in the same hospital as this gentleman's daughter, the one that we were together. Um, and that gentleman and his wife and younger daughter were in another hospital. So everyone was sort of split. When my family arrived uh, from the UK, so my grandparents, they connected with this uncle, this, this gentleman's family, who'd also now flown in from the UK, and they got talking because we're all from kind of similar community, like we speak the same language. And <laughs> like with Indians, they everyone knows everyone, so they do like this thing, um, like how do you know each other? And they found out they got mutual people we know mutual people but we've never met them you know prior to this so, so somehow the the consulate probably contacted your grandparents to get them that's over. right yeah so yeah. um from from the accident i'm guessing you know next of kin or whatever oh we have family friends in uh, mumbai who obviously heard about the accident and had contacted my family back in the uk so i'm guessing they knew that way too um, obviously we lost a lot of our documents and stuff. So yeah. again, getting emergency documents was difficult. Mm. Uh, they had to verify that I was a resident of the UK. 
and that's why everything took longer um and yeah so that's how i managed to come back to the uk um when you came to in the hospital what was your first recollection what was your first memory um because obviously i heard my grandma's voice i heard the um young medic's voice that was in india but when i'm flown back to the uk i'm now sort of met with my other aunties uncles and cousins you know so they've all come to the burns unit in um st andrews in billericay in essex and they're pretty much telling me the same thing like you know those you've been involved in an accident mum dad and gunmish not here uh, you've got burns but don't worry we're going to be taking care of you everything's going to be okay for me again it's that whole thing they're on the plane they've come to surprise us so the information they're telling me didn't really register. Um because my aunt, my eyes were bandaged at this point. I'm in and out of theatre for, you know, being treated for smoke inhalation and skin grafts and obviously trying to make sure I don't get infections on the, the wounds. So between those voices, in in my heart and head, nothing's happened, you know everyone's on the plane mm. so i'm still on the plane um i hear lots of machinery noises but i just thought it's just the plane that's noisy obviously now i know that was all my life support mm. um, you know breathing machines so you were fully and... on life support yeah yeah Shit. So what was support. the what was the medical treatment like in india before you got airlifted i know it was only a couple of days but how was that because anastasia was saying that the hospital she was at in greece was awful until she got to the UK when she had terrific um, healthcare. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, being in India, I mean, they probably could have just done the most basic, would have been very much ensuring I'm alive. So life support, yeah, um, fluids, I guess. Well, they did you have uh, your burns wrapped? Because she didn't. Um, I to be fair, I wouldn't know. No, okay, yeah. Um. No one's talked about it. Um, I'm guessing they probably would have been bandaged and that were it. But from what I also know is they did say I didn't have a lot of time. Mm. So it was a case of I did need to get back to the UK because there wasn't anything they could do there. Jeez, you're lucky. You're lucky they yeah. got you back in time. Absolutely. So you're in... So you're in um... I said coma, I suppose, or under sedation in terms of the medication, listening to these sounds. What were, when did you come to? How many days had you been in the UK for? Um, about a day or two, I reckon, that, as in being conscious. Mm. Um, but because I couldn't see anything, it was just voices at this stage. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty much in and out of theatre was at least two to three weeks, you know, in and out of theatre, recovering and then back in again, recovering. It's all so of that. when you're saying going into theatre, what are they? What procedures are they doing? Um, at this point, it's being treated for smoke inhalation, uh-huh. uh, skin grafts, so, you know, taking skin from other parts of my body to for don- like donor sites. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in and out of surgery with that. I uh, had a fracture on my right arm, so just to kind of help with those. Um, so it's very much like skin grafts was the main one. Mm. 
um, releasing tight scars, all of those things were done, you know, like in that sort of three week period, I suppose. Um, so where I'm in sedation, I'm in and out, in and out. For me, it could have been days, but it was actually a couple of weeks. Okay. Um, and because I could only just hear voices as opposed to see anyone, it's a day for me. Yeah, yeah. time's distorted. Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, there's no concept of time. So, yeah, and then it comes to a point where now they're going to remove the bandages from my eyes and obviously I'm going to be able to see and it's gonna I was excited because I was like, I wanna see myself now. Like everyone says you look different. But as a ten year old, what does looking different even mean? So you had no idea that they were saying and I wanna be careful because I don't want it to seem like a negative, but in terms of you didn't they were saying different, but you had no idea if that was a negative or a positive. You had no idea if that meant that you Yeah looked like a you know. Yeah, I just look different. So yeah. I didn't look indifferent. Like when they said you've got burns, I hadn't even experienced like let's say a cooker burn or an iron burn at this stage at age 10. So you had no so, reference point. No, yeah. So what is burns even supposed to look like? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you look different. you got burns. Okay. So, but in my head, because those few weeks – I was still Dulcie in that I was quite boisterous, quite loud, like the prankster type of energy. And I, I was very much like that. Um, I was very popular in school, in the playground. I was always fighting some sort of injustice. I was one of those kind of person in the playground where everyone wanted to be my friend, wanted to play with me and my friends or, you know, my group of friends. So I was still that person. So even the way my family were talking to me, I was still that Dulce, not the, oh, poor you. Like there was no, there was no, they didn't treat me different despite them mourning their own loss. And also I'd say mourning because they're mourning the Dulce that wasn't what she looked like before. And also your parents and brother. Absolutely. Exactly. Because it's their sibling, you know, it was if the sister they lost or a, brother or a nephew you know whatever relation they had so amongst that plus having their young families too so lots of heightened emotions Mm. but they kept grounded for me so I felt like Dulce so when the opportunity came for me to see myself I was excited because what does looking different mean is maybe they've changed my hair color or I don't know they might have cut my hair you know like because no one explained how I look different. They just said, you've got burns. So no one talked about scarring. No one talked no. about, um, I don't want to use the word disfigurement, but the, I mean, yeah. scars do cause skin to, to look different. I mean, Absolutely. I think you look beautiful, yeah. but you know. Thank you. No, but yeah, exactly. No one, no one discussed what exactly or where they were, you know, it was mm. just, you've got burns. To, oh, that I remember anyway. Um, but yeah, so the opportunity came, um, the nurses and doctors were they were very much were like, I don't think she fully understands what's actually happened. Mm. Because the level of excitement I had excitement meaning like, yeah, just give me the mirror already. Like, what's the big deal? Mm. Um, yeah, so they were there in the room and held that mirror up. It was like a handheld mirror. And when I saw that face in the mirror, it was like <sighs> 
somebody drew that face on. I was like, that is some seriously weird joke. Like, because I was a prankster, I literally thought somebody drew that face on. So I thought, yeah, or someone's having a laugh now. But then the person in the mirror whose mouth and eyes were moving is when I realised, ooh, that's me. And then when I looked down at my left hand at the time, you know, red raw, uh, there were metal uh, little sort of rods sticking out of my fingers because I had to straighten them. I looked at it and I was like, okay, something has happened. So I still didn't at that point think plane crash, loss of family and this. I didn't put that together. Um, I, I was like, okay, you know what? In a year's time, there's going to be a magic cloth. This is all going to go away. So my attitude has always been, it's no big deal from a young age. So this was one of those things. So when I looked at my hand, it wasn't like, oh my God, what's going to happen? I didn't have that. It was just like, okay, magic cloth is going to go in a year. This is no big deal. This is nothing. So whether I was naive or whether I was optimistic, but that's what got me through. Probably both. But that attitude, both, yes. But then the attitude I've always had of it's no big deal has got me through so much mm. more in my life down down the line that even now when somebody says, oh, my God, you've been through a plane crash, I'm like, it's not that deep is how I see it. But wow. for them it's like, but it's a plane crash. And I'm like, okay. I am not knocking the fact it's not a big thing, you know, don't get me wrong. But I think if you've experienced it, you understand the reality and because you've lived it and then worked through it, it probably, you come across as someone that's very much in the revision. I'm going to look forward now. So I can understand that mentality. And when someone hasn't lived through that, Mm. it does seem like an enormous, um, obstacle to have to overcome in terms of absolutely mental strength yeah no exactly like I'm not knocking the fact it's a plane crash don't get me wrong but it was for me it's just yes you are Tulsi you're just like just a plane crash no worries (laughs) yeah yeah, casual (laughs) it's like buying lipstick in the counter no worries (laughs) (laughs) literally that literally that it's literally that so yeah so when um I saw myself and then you know, no one treated me different in hospital because nurses and doctors, this is normal for them. Uh, my family at this stage have now got used to me looking this way. So I'm just now being Dulce. Yes, all this has happened, but I still haven't registered the fact that my parents have gone. That still hasn't sort of sunk in. So how far post being in the UK are we now if they showed you the, the scarring? I think about a four weeks, I reckon. Okay. And how? what percentage of scarring or burns so do I've you have to your body? Yeah, 45% degree burns to my face and body. Uh, that's second and third degree burns. Talk um, to me about the difference between first, second and third degree burns. I've got no idea. I know it's a thickness and depth, but I don't know which one's worse. Yeah, so yeah, third degree is pretty much the worst in the respect that you lose a lot of your nerves and sensation and very deep scarring so for example on the right hand side of my face was third degree burns on my left arm was third degree burns 
but then on my rest of my body it was second and third so a bit of mix but second in that the fact they're still functional not debilitating in, in any kind of way I still have sensation but like my left arm I can't always feel certain things there's some some parts are numb so if I'm having injections it's brilliant because I can't feel anything <laughs> <laughs> please jab me there please jab me there <laughs> but um so yeah in my fa- face now I've got I've got sensation in my face now because since starting laser treatment uh for for the skin um I'm getting sensation back but prior to that I I couldn't feel hot and cold Right. So what's the, what's the laser doing for you? What is the so, laser treatment? So the laser treatment is um, breaking down the scar tissue, mm-hmm. um, so bringing more functionality, uh, changing the so appearance of the scar. So when you're saying functionality, scar... you're talking elasticity too. Exactly Sorry, that, yeah. Sorry, everybody listening, I just hit my mic. So the elasticity <laughs> to, the, to the skin. Absolutely. So, yeah, like I couldn't open my mouth fully. So, for example, eating outside, um, if it was a sandwich, I'd have to cut it into such small pieces to eat, to which point it was like, I don't want to eat out. Uh, it would just be easier to eat at home. Mm. Um, but why would it be easier small... to eat at home? Is it because you were fearing people looking? Because if you, if, you yeah. if you can't open your mouth, that's the same if you're outside or within your home. Yeah, but in home it's like cutting things into pieces and taking time to eat is... Normal. okay because it's in my own space yeah whereas here it's like if you're with friends and they've literally finished their meal two hours ago it's a bit like so yeah, that's okay. more so fully okay so that long to okay yeah it would just be like they've finished their meal i mean they've at whatever speed they've at but it's a bit like just difficult so like obviously i'm not going to cut a sandwich with a knife and fork so if i went out you know what it's like when you get a sandwich it's a very quick cultures thing right mm. like sandwich pack of crisp and a drink like typical eat and eat and go so if we did go out and i went to places where i need knives and forks it was much easier because you can just cut it in small pieces and Why eat you just it stick and... a gnocchi or something have a, some <laughs> gnocchi or some risotto or <laughs> it's already <small>. exactly <laughs> yeah so then um you know but that obviously that was a lot later but when I was socializing. So yeah, just things like that. But so since lasers come along, I got a better speech as well as a little bit more slurry. Uh, if I went to the dentist, um, I'd have to have gen- uh, local anesthetic around my mouth just so that they could open it to see the back of my mouth because it's just too painful. Um, other functionality, like I can breathe through my right nostril now. So for 20 odd years prior to having laser, um, I was always used to wake up feeling quite stuffy and struggle to breathe. Obviously, never put it down to anything else. But then when I started having laser around the nose area and it's opened up the nostrils, it's like I can wake up, I can breathe now when I wake up and I'm not congested. Mm. It's just functionality, which I just basically took for granted, right? Like, Yeah, well, everyone plus would years take of, for granted, you know? Yeah, but just 20 plus years I've not had it so to me it was like it was my norm and then now I have it it's like whoa I can move my face oh my gosh I can breathe and it's the small wins that are the big wins so yeah that's what laser's done just had it done in fact last week and already I've got more sensation back so 
at the moment it's quite hot here in the UK, which is very unusual, obviously. <laughs> but I can feel the warmth. Whereas before I wouldn't have been able to tell if it's hot really? or cold. That's yeah. interesting. So, um, yeah, just, just functionality. So, yeah, like, so from the accident, you know, 32 years ago, just getting on with life. Hang on a minute. Let's, let's go, we jump forward. So let's go back to the hospital. You just looked in the mirror and you realised, okay, ma- this is not what I thought, but magic cloth. We were at the magic cloth. Yeah. Let's go yeah. back there. So, like, yeah, this magic cloth that, you know, things are going to be fine. There's no big deal. I don't have to worry about it too much. In hospital, everyone was just treating me as me. So not that I was feeling confident, but it was like, okay, I've got this type of thing. And then comes a moment where I'm discharged from hospital now, like I can go home. How how far down the track are we now? uh, Four months. But how are you dealing with the where are my parents? You're saying that you don't realise where they are. So aren't you asking for them? I'm asking for them constantly. And all I keep getting told is, you know, they've passed away, like as in they're not here. But I don't know so what they passed keep away saying, means. Oh, so they were saying passed away. No one actually used the D word to you. So you didn't actually yeah, understand. Yeah, so they've died. They said they've died, but I right. didn't understand what died meant because I hadn't seen it myself. I think it's one of those seeing is believing type of thing. Yeah. Um. So I didn't have the concept of what do you mean they've died or they're not here. Yeah. So in my head, they're still in India and they're okay, or well, is it okay meaning they're still alive? Um, that probably lasted for about two to three years, to be honest. So that's obviously now the denial stage, mm. where in my head I'd convinced, obviously they've lost their passport, no one's there to prove that they're from the UK, uh, but they are getting a new passport and they're going to come back. And so that lasted for almost three years. I wonder whether or not that was your brain purposefully putting that, putting that, realizing that you're going to have to grieve and go through that process. But I'm going to compartmentalize that because I just can't deal with dealing with the burn situation and the loss of my family as well. Like I wonder how much that was a, a complete subconscious mindset completely yeah completely i mean that's why the mind is phenomenal it's amazing like it it's like like i'm so grateful that i haven't had any flashbacks in sense of but i then haven't also closed myself off from it because it may happen i mean it's 32 years but who knows you know i'm um i haven't had any flashback haven't had any Ooh, I remember all that sensation. Or I haven't had any associations with it. But, yeah, so the fact that, like I said, in the denial stage, they were just in India, they lost their passport. I'm just dealing with things here. They'll be back soon. Um, But every time I saw a picture of my family, like, you know, being an album or in the wall or whatever in the house, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't really I couldn't look at pictures of them. That, that was too painful. Why was it painful if you were thinking that they were just in India? Yeah, this is it. So it's painful because it's like, why aren't they here? Mm. And then why are people showing me pictures of them and saying, 
think of the good times. So it was just too conflicting for me. Um, and I think a lot of those pictures, because it had me in there, I think as well, partly was like, but I don't look like that. And had your family, gonna... Did your family understand that you didn't really understand, like you hadn't actually grasped the concept that they'd part, like they were deceased to use a very clinical term mm. and that you hadn't gone through that grieving process? Did they understand no, because culturally, like, again, that's, you know, I grew up South Asian culture is very much, okay, they're not here now, kind of, not get over it as in literally get over it, but it's like, it's done now. Mm. And it's, that's it. So no one understood the extent of my grief mm. because because I was smiling from the outside. They just thought I've dealt with it. Um. Sure enough, no one could look at images of of them for quite some time, to be honest. You know, it wasn't, let's have a party and, hey, everyone, let's look at pictures. No one could do that. I know that for a long time. Even now, some family members still struggle. You know, it's still as raw as it was then. Mm. But we didn't have that for a while. So I know everyone's grieving in their own way, but no one was talking about it. So they just presumed I'd got over it. Um, because I was smiling, I was jovial. Um, but that's the thing with me. Like, I've smiled through life through most things. Where do you think that that comes from? Um, I think it's just from my mind. I think from a young age, I've always just smiled my way through things. Um, yes, but what, But some people don't do that. So why do you, like, is there anything tangible that you think, are you conscious of? Is it a conscious thought I'm just going to smile my way through it or do you think it's just a somehow an ingrained DNA it, thing that, that that's just yeah, me? Yeah, it was just me. I didn't even notice I was smiling until I look back at some pictures and go, whoa, in the depth of that you were smiling? Mm. Like I remember when that picture was taken, you were scared as hell or shy but yet you were smiling. Mm. And that's what, it, like, I didn't know. It wasn't like now, like I'm smiling consciously now at you. It's not, but there it was, it's just all I knew. Um, and that's not to say that uh, I wasn't sad inside. Oh, absolutely I was. Do you think it's, I can get through mindset, I'll my way, my way through every anything, or is it more, that you completely disassociate from the situation as a coping mechanism? I think it was very much disassociation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, you said earlier, I was going through so much. Mm. Um, it's a bit like I can only cope with one bit at a time. Yeah, I get that. Even I though- did that a lot as a, I did that a lot as a kid in terms of yeah. shit. Yeah. It's, it's and a I lot, didn't realise like- that I was doing it until you know, therapist told me <laughs> yeah. recently, she's like, did you realize? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So, and, and how many other kids do that? Right. Like, yeah. and then we put so much on them, but, but yeah, like, so not only am I looking different, I'm in and out of hospital, obviously surgeries, even then I've been discharged. There's always something to do. Yeah. There's always some scar to release or something. So then you're just physio- busy getting on with healing really. Yeah, full time job. Yeah. yeah. 
full t- it was a full time job. So yeah. like I've now started a new school because it's now high school time. Um, they were great. Had the best support in school. Like I cannot fault. Wow, my that's amazing. Journey. So no bullying at school or no, anything. No, nothing. Not amazing. even an ounce of it. Incredible. Because I, when I left hospital, I only had one month left of my primary school. Yeah. And then it was the summer holidays here in the UK. And then I was starting new school that same year. Mm-hmm. So they were all prepared with how I was going to look. So the teachers were telling them. Teachers and Amazing. the students all had a big assembly. Amazing. Uh, and that was the day before I started. I didn't know that this was happening, Yeah. to be fair. Yeah. As far as I knew, the start date was I thought everyone's starting that day. Um, only when I got told later that this is what had happened. But they were just said, look, just treat her as you would anyone else. Make friends with her. You don't need to make her a special case or anything. We're just telling you what she's going to look like, the support she may need, and that's it. But no one spoke to me as if they felt sorry for me. Yeah. They were very much, oh, hi, Dawson. I'd be like, oh, how do they know my name? Like, this is my first day. <laughs> it was a bit like, oh, okay. Um, I'm a rock star. <laughs> well, totally, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they recognize the diva, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is pre-social media, so yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I just made friends. Um, Like I said, I was in and out of hospital. So I missed a lot of school in that respect. But there was always somebody giving me work to catch up on. It was never, oh, can someone take notes? It's just, they just did it. That's amazing. Even till today, I still have those friends. Uh, I still am in contact with a lot of those school friends. Was this a the public other... school or a private? I know it's different over there. So is it a government yeah. school or is it a yeah. paid school? Yes. yes. I don't know why school, you guys so... call it a reverse, public's private, private. I don't know. You guys are weird over there. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a state school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, state school. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a government state school. So just, yeah, regular school. And even now those friends are still here and – at no point was it they felt sorry. They just, I'm just Dulcie, you know? Yeah. Um, and, of course, they're navigating. They've probably never seen someone with burns or what to do. We're that age. Everyone's going through adolescence now. So now I've got burns, adolescence, in Growth. our hospital. So I yeah. still haven't got time to focus on the the death of my parents and my brother. So that's still not pivotal at this point. You were, I'm well, you may, you may get to this part. Uh, you, it's still a lot to go in the story, but I'm surprised that with puberty, there's hormones, particularly with women, girls, there's a lot of anger that comes. From. I remember being so angry during puberty, like just irrational <laughs> anger, just, you know, it's anyway, hormones. And then obviously, I'm just surprised that you never went to anger in terms of I'm angry about my situation. I'm angry that I'm in burns. I'm angry that I look different. I'm angry naturally because of the hormones. I'm don't have my parents here. Like, fuck you. I'm going to go down the park and get pissed or something, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you probably did, but I'm like, you could have really got off the rails, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always think it, I always think that even now, like, if anyone had a right to 
to do that, it would have been me. Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't an option, to be fair. Missed opportunity, Tulsi. Yeah. I, exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> Very. <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, obviously, even that age, obviously, I was just in and out of hospital. So, they kind of, sounds really bizarre, but there wasn't enough time to even do things yeah. like that. Um, so, I had really good family support in respect. They were just always there. I had an auntie who lives across the road to me even now who just kind of not played the mother role because that's not what it was, but she took care of things. And she had a young family herself. Is this a blood auntie or a family friend auntie? Uh, No, so my dad's brother's wife, yeah. So connected that way. Blood auntie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so she just took care of things. So, you know, when you start the period and going to buy the sanitary towels and all of that, like she was doing that with me Mm -hmm. to the best of her ability and knowledge. So I guess it's those little moments that probably uh, my mom would have done those. Mm. But because she did it so well, at that point, it wasn't like, why isn't my mom here? You're I almost denied with your the grandparents fact, at the time? I'm at the, yeah, with my grandparents. So I denied the fact that I needed my mom even from that age. Yeah. It's almost like, well, she's not here now, so what's the point of crying over something when she's not here? That's, so I adopted that because it was obviously safer to do that then it was to admit they're not here and that I needed them. Yeah. So I obviously that's when I became even more independent, um, doing everything on my own. And, yeah, like dealing with the bullying at that point because that's when it all started was as soon as I left hospital, it's the journey to and from hospital, the journey to and from school, out into the community going to buy milk. This is where it's all happening, name-calling, people crossing the road in case they caught something, um, kids throwing things at me to see like what kind of emotions I have, am I even real, uh, constant sniggering, constant talking behind my back, ignorant comments such as can you walk, can you talk, can you see, can you eat. So they were treating uh, you like a monster? Completely. And Completely. This is not your peer group or kids at school. This is the general public. So this is adults as well. This is adults and kids, <gasps> yeah. So this is out in the community. So then this is where, when I said I did, I wasn't confident in, spe- in sense when in hospital, I was confident, but it was like, it's okay, I've got this. But then all of a sudden, because now the world is telling me I'm ugly I'm not worthy. You start believing this it. This is what I believed. Mm. And this is where the confidence shifted mm. that having burns meant I was a bad person. Okay, so, so it went to you're not just, didn't affect just your self-worth and and um, self-esteem. It fully went to I'm a bad person, which is a, which is a different shift in itself. Completely. So I was just... I deserve this. Um, I'm a bad person, so you know wow, that person. I, I might have this. cheated in the <gasps> okay. cheated in the playground before my accident. This is why I'm getting paid for it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so although I was standing up to bullies in the playground, because I became a bully, I'm paying for it now. Like is the kind of mindset I got into. Is the Indian culture um, superstitious? Yes. So that probably played into it as well. That played into it. I mean, I don't recall anyone 
putting it on me, if that makes sense, as in you might have done something bad in your past life and that's what... Like... No, but I think if it's if it's a cultural thing that you grow up with and people are talking about other people, oh, that probably happened to them because they did something in, the, in a past yeah, life. Yeah, that's what I mean, yes. Yeah, so it, it wasn't put on me, but it was the, kind of... Yeah, the, it's in the, our psyche, basically. Their judgment yeah. seeps into your psyche. Yeah, it's yeah. in our DNA end of the day, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was all that. Um, but also it's more like... I was being referred to as Freddy Krueger. So that was quite constant. Was this the one now, same person doing this? Or was this multiple people calling you that? Yeah, so just like where I went, oh, oh she looks like Freddy Krueger. Oh, Freddy Krueger. Oh, I ain't Freddy Krueger. Like it was awful, relentless. But because I didn't know who Freddy Krueger was, I just thought, oh, that's cool. As in Freddy Krueger. Didn't sound graphic, but then when I came home and had told my uncle, oh, look, everyone's calling me Freddy Krueger, like as some sort of honour badge, you know, that I should be wearing. He was so angry. And I thought, I've done something wrong now. So we see, I've kind of gone, what have I done? Oh, 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 oh sorry. He's like, don't you let anyone ever call you that. And I was like, oh, okay, why? And then he explained Remember that film Nightmare on Elm Street? That guy, I was like, yeah, he goes, that's Freddy Krueger. I was like, oh, the bad guy. He went, yeah. And you see already, because at this point, I feel like I'm a bad person. It confirmed that I'm a bad person mm. because the world is seeing that about me. And so I now have adopted the fact that I'm now a bad person and that I'm Freddy Krueger because that's how the world sees me. So all the goodness that I was doing, because that's who I am. I'm just that. I couldn't see that anymore. I couldn't see the goodness I was doing. I just thought I was a bad person because of the way I looked. So everything now stemmed back to the way I looked. Um, So that just carried on for such a long time that it was relentless. It was just relentless. So if somebody said you're beautiful, if I said somebody said you're beautiful, I'd be like, which part my fingernails you know like I couldn't understand what part are you seeing that's beautiful because mm. I'm not I'm not like don't humor me by saying you're beautiful that's because that's how it used to sound mm. um it took obviously a very long time my confidence journey is now only 10 years old so for 22 years that's how I saw myself yeah in don't get me wrong, I have fake exterior confidence, i.e. put the makeup on, life and soul of the party. Yeah, I had that. But internally I didn't feel that. Yeah. So once the makeup comes off home, you know, when you the and the alcohol wears off, it's still feeling that still crappy feeling. So that's how long it took me to work through those dialogues, you know. And another thing that comes with having a visible difference is the world telling you this is what's part and parcel of having a visible difference you're gonna get this but the point is that's not acceptable anyway that's not something that should be going well now you look different do you expect the world to treat you like that we shouldn't be doing that Mm. it's not acceptable right like it's not acceptable i get bullied because i look different so I convinced myself that because I look different, it's okay that I get bullied. It's, it's part and parcel. 
Um, so I couldn't tell my family I got bullied because that's exactly what had been said. Don't worry, just ignore them. It just you know you're not you're not that. Yeah, because it was that easy, you know, just ignoring the world, of course. So I couldn't tell them. So then there comes the whole journey of suffering in silence. Um, and that went on for such a long time, you know. And then comes the reality, I think age 13, 14 now, I've really realised my parents aren't coming back and that I am on my own. It's like, whoa. Okay, who do I talk to? I've got plenty of aunties and uncles who are very parental roles, but yet everything that I shared with them, I almost wasn't being heard as if it was my own parents. Because end of the day, not this is not discounting anything, but I wasn't anyone's priority. Mm. Like I would be my parents' priority, but I'm not theirs because they've got their own children and their own stuff. Did your pa- did your grandparents not take you on as a priority, as your guardian? They they did, but it's a generational thing, especially cultural as well. So it's like they come from the very old school way of doing things the way they talk the the language the tone very different to my parents so everything was very matter of fact so there were certain things i couldn't tell them mm. um it's like you know even things like periods like i couldn't have told my granddad so even now even now i live with him it's not a discussion we have do you know what it's like it's just that level but if it was my dad it would be very different yeah yeah. So because well, of the it is different. Like I remember both my parents um you know going out and getting me stuff from the supermarket if I needed it and, and so forth. So Yeah, and I did that on my own. Yeah. Well you know? I went to boarding so did... school and I then I had to do that. But yeah, it, it I understand where you're coming from in terms of a generational Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the local, you know, drugstore to get that on my own. I have no idea what Dealing like with the embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. That embarrassment. Um, I did it with my pocket money. So it wasn't like I got separate money for it. It was all came from my pocket money. Yeah. So I had to save for things like that. Is it do I buy a pack of sanitary towels or do I buy a packet of crisp? It was that's the decision yeah. I had to make. Yeah. So it's very different to my friends. Mm. Very different to my cousins, because they their parents did go and buy everything. They bought the toothpaste and sanitary towels and I did that myself because I, my grandparents can do that for me. So it's and then like, that, that bleeds into everything in terms of puberty, doesn't it? That that's bra shopping, and then that's talking about boys, and that's you know, or girls, every, or whatever you're into. Package, yeah, yeah, like everything, yeah. you know, like it's just it's the adolescent growing up. I mean, I suppose I never talked about relationships with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> very different yeah, very different so, you know but anyway the, 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 what I'm I'm agreeing with you in terms of a generational gap yeah absolutely um okay boys so yeah, that's enough just... we've talked about enough of periods you can tune in again yeah. now <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's just uh I, I was just growing up doing my thing so that on top of all this name calling and the society telling me I'm different and I don't have a place here it was almost like, well, why did I have to survive then? Did you get to that? Did you get suicidal? That it got that dark? Yeah, it, suicidal out. in the respect of, like, what was all this for? Mm. 
if this is the torture I've got to go through, then why did I have to survive? Yeah. So I never asked why the accident happened or why I lost my prince. I was my why was more why did I have to survive? That point. So but that's more in terms of because you're dealing with this external bullying from exactly. society. That's different that's from survivor's guilt. Did you have survivor's guilt as well? No. Okay. Well that's good. No. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. So it was never oh what why did I survive and not my brother and did it do and it mine was more about the pain that I was in, the mental pain, and, not the physical, the okay. mental pain. because uh, physically I wasn't in pain apart from surgery, but like the attitude and no big deal. I didn't that kind of pain didn't bother me. It was the mental pain that was heavy, the isolation, feeling isolated, couldn't talk to anyone, no one could understand. Because my friends couldn't understand, obviously they can't, because, you know, they've not lost their family or got burns and are in and out of hospital. Well, as much as they can empathise, they can't relate. Exactly that, and that's what it was. And for them, I'm just T, so they don't see the pain that I was in, you know, because they just tea, like tea's one of us. She's, we don't see the difference. What burns, what you're talking about, you know? Mm. And I get that now, but, and it wasn't because I was relying on them to understand, but so if I told them about the bullying, it's again, similar thing like, oh, tea, just ignore them. They're just so silly. You're not, you're so amazing, blah, blah. Couldn't, couldn't understand that. So now when we talk about it, you know, and I always say to them, I just want to thank you guys because you guys will never know the impact of your compassion for me has helped me be who I am today, along with other things in life, don't get me wrong, but they were the foundations of that because, let's say, age 11, when we all start secondary school here in the UK, they've never seen anyone with burns. They've never seen anyone who looks like this, but they still navigated life with their heart, mm. not the judgment. Not like, tea. I'm not going to sit next to you because you look... They didn't have that. They had compassion. And I said, that's a, that's a gift that's lacking today. Mm. And they had that. They had compassion for their friend. They didn't know what to say. They haven't experienced it, but they still held me in high regard because of compassion. And I said... And I, you know, I'm very vocal when it comes to paying compliments to people because... It's really nice to let people know where they've helped someone or helped me. And they always said, T, we always think, how could we have done things differently for you? I go, you couldn't have. You did it perfectly uh, to the best of your ability. That age, right? You said that it was 13, 14 that it started to dawn on you about your parents weren't coming back to, to the UK. Mm-hmm. That was obviously very. Um, we're probably three years post accident now. Yeah. <clears throat> the rest of your family have grieved that. How do you then approach that in terms of? Okay, you're in a grieving space now. How do you then approach that to them and be and f- have that support? Because you've been smiling tea for the up until now. I didn't. I didn't. Wow. 
Um, so she everything's just been internalised. Dealt with it yourself. Yeah, yeah. I've, everything post accident is I've done myself. Um, Holy so, shit, Tulsi! That's a lot to internalise. Absolutely. So I haven't had any mental support, i.e., counselling, psychotherapy, psychology. I haven't experienced any formal professional therapy, even to date. Till today. Um, wow. So rewinding thirty-two years globally, it now I don't know if I was offered some sort of support and my family turned it down, but I certainly wasn't asked if I wanted to talk about it. The I only think back then it was very different. Very that's what I and mean. So it was very different. Very stigmatized. That's it. They're probably, I mean, your family's probably trying to do their best and trying to figure out. Yeah, so this way, even the family, this is more about the only professional people I know that were part of that time were social workers because it was, of course, where am I going to live and that. That's the only professional I remember. But in terms of, I don't think I was offered it directly to me, like, oh, Tulsi, would you like to talk to us? So, yeah, like exactly that, the stigma wasn't around i'm surprised that the hospital didn't offer it but i'm not surprised and i've talked about this before on the podcast that one of my friends had bowel cancer she's luckily got it removed and is fine after chemo um but they never she really struggled and they never offered her any counseling i had to ring up and tear strips off the nurse in charge to get her some phone numbers for them to walk into Mm. her room you know like it was just not there. The, that mental support side of things is not there. They're looking at a clinical, physical situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what it was for me. So I only knew about counselling around the age of 1920 because at that point now I'm doing a psychology degree where I learn, ooh, counselling. What's counselling? And then I went to do a counselling certificate course because – I was finding lots of people coming to me with advice, as in wanting advice from me, telling me their life stories. I mean, age 13, I had someone telling me I had a miscarriage because they trusted me, because they saw that in me. I didn't know what to do with that. Obviously, I held space because I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. I call it hold space now because that's I know what that's called. But I don't, know what, that's, like, I don't know what that is, but I suppose you just stand there staring at them. <laughs> yeah, it's just like more case of thank you so much for sharing your story like how do you feel as opposed to judgmental going why are you telling me maybe you did something then right rather than that because they probably encountered that so they must have seen something in me for them to share that so I went to do this counseling certificate course and at that point I'm that cocky confidence now so it's cocky confidence meaning a little bit of alcohol feel good I'm good, you know, a bit of hair and makeup now, we're fine. So I went to do this course and I'm sort of winging it. We had to keep a dear diary type of thing just so, you know, to show how real we are. And I was writing, I'm fine, I'm great, I had a really good day, I feel good. And every day I was writing that. So my lecturer pulled me up and he's like, I'm not denying or disputing people can't be happy every day. He goes, but surely... You've got some there other emotions in there. Yeah. 
what? No, I'm good. And he's like, no, you need to be honest. He goes, when people stare at you, how do you feel? Uh, I'm angry. He goes, so why can't you write that? I go, I can't write that. That's embarrassing. He goes, no, you need to own this. So my diary entry started changing. In this is probably where I got counselled without it being professional in that respect. And that's when things started to change for me from that point. So where's me thinking like, oh, I'm going to go into this as a career. Suddenly was like, I don't want to do this. This is horrible because it's making me see the truth, <laughs> the real side of me. Um, and then, yeah, then my career changed from there again. I went on to do a degree in um, applied health sciences, specialised in Pilates and massage. And then life as I knew it now was going to change in a massive way. Um, so now my life isn't about my burns anymore. My life is about surviving because of my health. Um, in the middle of doing my degree, I was feeling really, really, really not well. And the uh, lecture theatres here in the UK, very old and stuffy, the very old, old buildings, you know, Victorian and Edwardian buildings. So I was feeling really stuffy and horrible. Went to my GP. Uh, my BP was very, very high. And they were like, well, for age 26, that's quite, quite high. Um, but they got nothing, maybe nothing to be alarmed. We'll do blood test. And within four days, my results had come back, which is very quick. And next thing I'm rushed to A&E. And my GP is keeping it very calm. He's like, oh, I don't want to panic you. It's fine. Got a good friend in A&E. He'll take care of you. At no point, I now remember his face. He was quite gravely, but he kept it very, as if I was VIP, you know, very diva. I'm going to fast track you through everything. So that's how I felt. Got to A&E within 20 minutes, I'm admitted, which is record time. And all I'm focusing on is I want to be back at my lecture theatre. You know, that's what I want to do. And then next thing, I get told, uh, you got end-stage renal failure. And it's like, as soon as I heard end-stage renal failure, all I heard was, you are dying. Yeah. Now, that's not what they said. But that's I what you heard. heard that's what I would he un understand it to be. When, they, to, when you talk yeah. about end-stage, you think end-stage of life. That's it. Yeah. End-stage renal failure. I'm like, renal failure? I know I've done work on renal in the in uni, and that's kidneys, obviously, but... What do you mean end stage? I've never even had a urine infection. What the hell is this, right? Like, obviously at that point, I know what kidneys do, but I never kind of took it seriously as in, yeah, you know, they filter and da 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 But here I am going, whoa, kidney failure? No one in my family has this. What is this? Again, you know, the attitude of no big deal? Mm-hmm. It was then that that came into play again. Oh, it's no big deal, T. You'll get through it. Whatever way you need to get through it, you'll get through it. Did they know what caused it? No. So I've had a couple of biopsies done. So, uh, yeah, I got admitted because I had to have biopsies and it came back as unknown cause. Uh, and then having sort of maybe done further investigation after, they kind of concluded because I was born premature, and again, 43 years prior, premature, you know, if you made it, you made it. Not now, where, you, you know, there's medicine and things like that. So that part of my 
kidney re- regulates your blood pressure hadn't obviously developed so I was kind of almost born with high blood pressure just was never picked up because it's probably not a thing so yeah um age 26 got diagnosed I was on 15% function um they go we can't tell you how long you have because we obviously we've not monitored you until this point you, you might get four years on it you might get two weeks we don't know so when are they saying when they're talking about on it are they talking about like what does that mean does that mean that they're saying that's what you got left to live or are they saying that's your kidneys and then what happened like what yeah so 15 percent percent function at that point meaning obviously you go off and live your life as in well they start implementing changes such as diet uh, fluid allowance, just little things to help prevent the kidney from deteriorating further. Mm-hmm. And on it meaning until it gets to a stage where they have to act, i.e. dialysis in my case. So obviously when the, after the whole panic of I am dying, then this, the, my consultant explained on, he goes, no, look, there are options. You can be on dialysis. There's a transplant. There's things, you know, this is not, it's not the end. Um, and when I heard the word dialysis, I was like, that's for 80, 90-year-old people. That's not... I'm 26. And it's so weird because I'm like, 26, dialysis, that's... What? So that concept of me being that young and it happening. And then from the time of diagnosis to them actually failing was only four months Wow. So, yeah, regular checkups. And then I was meant to fly out to Spain. I thought, let me get one trip in before. It was plus it was summer holidays. So let me get a trip in. If anything happens, then at least I've had a holiday. And the day before I was flying is when I got the call to say, you need to come in. We need to fit you for your catheter. We need to start your dialysis training. To which I was like, well, can I just go? I'm only going for three, four nights. I'll be back. And she's like, you're probably not even going to make the flight. And my humor has obviously got me through things. So I went, what? Twice in a bloody plane? Like one in an accident and now this. Like, really? Really? <laughs> um, I mean, like I said, that was my humor and that kind of made me laugh. But obviously it was like, okay, I need to go to hospital now. I had to cancel. Next thing you know, literally going to hospital fitted with a catheter in my abdomen. Uh, I've got this sort of weird tube thing sticking out my stomach area now. It's like, what on earth? I mean, don't get me wrong, I've not got body confidence at this stage, but this on top of feeling crap yeah. about myself was like, oh, my God. And then, yeah, and then once that was healing, uh, I was in hospital still. Then I was being trained how to dialyze. So, again, I've gone into... The dialysis unit. When they're saying training to dialyze, is that you have a machine at home and you hook so yourself up? So this would have been a machine at home. So it would have been peritoneal dialysis, which means a machine at home, fluids at home, you go on every night, dialyze throughout the night, come off in the morning. That's peritoneal dialysis. And hemodialysis is where you go into hospital a couple of times a week and you get, get your that blood way. filtered. Yep. A bit blood filtered. So, But because I was young and... Uh, relatively healthy in every other way, the option for me to have peritoneal dialysis, you know, was the one. So, yeah, they 
treat uh, you know they 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 did the training uh, this machine looks like a massive printer back in the days uh, fluid bags everywhere remembering and it was lots of cleaning wash your hands at this stage clean at this stage start, uh, sterilize at this stage it was a process so when we started training the thing used to take me an hour and then by the time I got good at it it took me half an hour so the minimum time is half an hour. You, there was no shortcut to the setup time. Okay, so that's just the setup time, and but, you, but it's running overnight. Time. Okay. And then, um, so I've done the training. They're confident. I know my staff already healed from my catheter being fitted, so I can now go home. I come home, and the room I'm talking to you right now at that time was my medical room which is an empty room, I come home, it's stacked high with boxes of fluids and wipes and tissue, you name it. Got to my bedroom, there's this big printer set up next to my bed. And it was like, whoa, not how I left it three weeks ago, but this is how I've come home to it. So it's all been set up while I'm, I was in hospital. And that's when reality started, you know. So I obviously knew what to do, so I started getting on with it. Um, my auntie got trained with me in case I was too ill. But no one's ever had to do it because I just did it myself. Um, and then, yes, I'd put the textbooks and the laptops on my bed and connect myself to the machine and then do my work on my bed because I'm in the midst of doing my degree and then go to sleep wake up in the morning, come off the machine, shower and go to uni. What's the reality, though, of sleeping hooked up to all these bloody cords everywhere? It was difficult because consciously if that cord got trapped, i.e., like, for example, if I'm on my stomach and there's little, uh, a little, what do you call it, kink. a little bend in the, yeah. yeah, kink, the machine would go off. So off, you know, two or three in the morning, big alarm bells going off and then I'd have to call the number although it was a UK number, but the call gets diverted to someone in the USA because they're now, it's their daytime, because obviously it's here in the middle of the night in the UK. So I'm talking to some random Chad Dave in the U USA with the most random accent. I love that you went to Chad as the name. That's <laughs> such an American It was name. a Chad. It was a Chad, and he had a Texan drawl. Oh, I love the Texan drool. Texan drool sexy as all get out. It's lovely, but not two in the morning when you're like <laughs> tired as hell and you don't know how to shut this machine off. Um, yeah. So obviously, bless them. They, you know, they were fantastic. They press this, do that, did 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 and whatnot, and it was fine. But that's part and parcel of having the machine. So in a week, it would go off almost three times. It was. It was that. So it wasn't a restful sleep, so to speak, because it's on edge, you know. So then consciously having to always make sure I didn't sleep on my stomach or thinking about that kink. So, yeah, it was that was so for almost three years I dial, dialyzed. Uh, I was never one of those that sat by the phone to wait for a, a call for a transplant. It wasn't. We got did a training on transplant in the beginning of my dialysis. And it was in the back of my head. It's not because I never kind of thought a transplant's going to happen and there's going to we're going to skip off into the sunset. It was never that. I became the dialysis became my life and it was fine. Like I said, no big deal. 
whatever. Uh, yeah, so dialyzed and uh, graduated as well in the midst of that, so which was great. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and this is a, it sounds really weird when I've achieved so much, but that I felt like was the biggest achievement. And it sounds really weird because I think I've achieved a lot, but I think it's because even more adversity was added onto it. And I, I think it. also it's probably something that's tangible. That I know it's a piece of paper, but it's something sure. tangible that you could go, look what I achieved, whereas everything else Absolutely. has been just overcoming stuff that's been put in front of you. It's not as if you can hold up something that's physical and say, I've, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely that. And then it, so yeah, graduated. And then in the midst of that, I was decorating my house. I know you're probably uncomfy, and, but can you just sit forward so you get closer to your microphone? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. So yeah. In, so finished, you know, I graduated in the midst of that, I was decorating my house. And again, my house was set up. Like I was going to put video calling in just so if I'm connected to my machine and I needed someone to let someone in. So, you know, I had all these things in place. So midst of doing my house up, January 2009, get a call on my house phone at 11 o'clock and it's a bit like, who rings the house phone at 11 and, unless it's bad news, you know, like... So this is PM. PM, yeah, mm. 11 PM at night. And again, yeah, house phone. I understand if it's mobile, you know, but it was a house phone. I was like, hi, this is did a doctor from Royal London. Uh, is this Tulsi? It's like, yeah, they go, just to let you know, we have a kidney for you. <gasps> uh, okay. And so, again, not registering kind of what he's saying. I'm just a bit annoyed. Like, you're calling me 11 o'clock at night. Like what I've just got on my machine are you kidding me because again we were taught not to you don't just come off your machine you know it's mm. it's a process mm. so I was more panicked about that and he, I said how long have I got to let you know because it's just because I've got meetings with the builder, builders and architects tomorrow <laughs> and I've paid a lot of money with this one you know and it was more of that and again this is what I mean because this transplant thing I just became really oblivious to what the process was going to be. And because obviously I don't sit and wait for this thing. Mm. It wasn't, it was a shock obviously to the system. And he goes, well, you've got five minutes because this is a near perfect match for someone with your blood group. This is not something that comes around. And I was like, well, in that case, I better come in. But where I've gone to surgery before I've got surgery a couple of days in and I'm out. You know, it's been like that all the way. So for me, this is how I saw it. I didn't see it as a life-saving thing. Uh, I just thought, oh, it's just a little scratch when you come home. You know, like very blasé. Very, I had a very blasé attitude. And then I called my auntie and uncle because they're, they're just the last people I thought of. And they go, yeah, we're coming. We're going to take you. I was like, okay, cool disconnected from my machine, did all of that. They go, don't worry, when you come to hospital, we'll drain you out and you'll be fine. Okay, cool. For, I think, two o'clock in the morning, I arrived there. By the time I got my bits, everything organised. Uh, they told me not to eat anything. I said I haven't since 6pm anyway. Um, and then next thing I know, I'm prepped for surgery and off I go. At, I think it was at 9 o'clock or 2pm, one of those slots. And having a transplant so 
I've always obviously like I've had so many surgeries so for me it was just yeah have surgery I'll be home in the next few days and I'll then go back to the builders and architects you know that kind of thing so I have it uh anesthetics anesthetics wearing off we were given those um do you know there's pain management that you can press yourself pca machines or something yeah that's something like that yeah and it's and it's i can't even say that word anyway it's pain relief that the patient administers pain relief yeah yeah so that that we were given that obviously i didn't even know anything about it but um when they saw like you know because they have to check how many times people's pressing it they're like, you've only ever pressed it five times. I'm like, okay. So to me, I was a bit like, well, God, have I become addicted five times, right? And But they go, aren't you in pain? I was like, well, I don't know. Like, this is surgery. Of course, it's pain. They go, you can press this if you are in pain. I was like, okay, but I'm all right. So I think, they were just, I think basically I hadn't pressed it a lot. As in, so they were just thinking, am I not in pain? Because by this stage, it should have been at least about 50 or 60 clicks. Mm. So I think just, they just they thought my machine wasn't working or something. Anyway, now with surgery, you know, they try and get you out of bed. So they're trying to get me out of bed. And I got out very effortlessly. In sense, obviously, I've had drains attached to me and everything. I'm getting out of bed and they watched me and they went, how the hell did you do that? You made it look easy. You didn't take no painkillers. What the hell? To me... Did you go, I'm a burn survivor, bitch? (laughs) Yeah, like, what? (laughs) And I was like, well, I can't fake this, but I'm okay. Mm. I I don't know what I should be feeling at this stage, but I'm all right. And then we're talking and I was like, this, this is where Pilates came into my life, like it was a massive part of my life. I said, that's got to be it because my core was really good. It was helping me function out of bed. And besides, I wanted to get home in three days. That's my goal. And my consultant was like, hell no way, you're coming out in three days. Minimum stays one week. I was like, oh, hell, that's that's a long time. <laughs> and so having this argument with him, lo and behold, three days I was out. He was just like, how on earth did you do that? I was like, yeah, it's cool, man. It's just walk in a park, really. And he looked at me and went, yeah, of course it's a walk in a park. Obviously, it's a walk in a park. Have you reflected, obviously, donors are, organ donors are amazing and, you know, they save lives. Have you now reflected on how amazing that gift was? Completely. Yeah. Completely. Even from that stage, you know, even from then, I was very honoured that I got it mm. and I never took it for granted um, my journey with that was more, like I said, I got out of hospital, I was fine, I came home, uh, I was in a lot of pain, but it's surgery pain, I mean, wasn't not going to be, mm. but what I didn't realise is I was quite sick at that stage, but I didn't realise. So when after transplant, you've got to go in regularly for appointments and checkups and they tweak the medicine and we were learning that I wasn't passing urine as I should have been but I, my body was four times the size. But being on steroids, that wasn't unusual. Mm. But it was when it was creeping up dramatically. Within two weeks of me having my transplant, I was now having a completely different operation. Transplant took three hours, four hours, including recovery. Uh, 
this second operation was 12 hours. Wow. What was wrong? So what actually happened was my kidney had a cyst, the transplanted kidney had a cyst, and it was leaking urine in the body. So that's what had caused the swelling. That's Jesus what caused Christ. my body to be very tender, very So they sore. couldn't, when they're looking, I mean, they're holding the kidney before they transplant, they check it. They, obviously they couldn't see the cyst. Was it an internal no. cyst? Yeah, internal. And then obviously the pressure from not being able to pass urine and then it just coming out of the cyst and yep. causing havoc. They drained me a few times, but they thought, okay, now that we've drained her, they call it nephrostomy, now that we've drained her, I was feeling okay. Again, like I said, I endured the pain because it's surgery. So my pain threshold is so sky high that actually it wasn't surgery pain. It was the urine building in my body. It was crystallizing joints. You know, that's what the pain was. So, yeah, and then they operated. So they basically had to uh, take the kidney out, uh, repair it, obviously put it back in. So they removed uh, the the kidney and then re-transplanted that kidney. Yeah, re-transplanted. wow. Uh, they took the urethra from my old kidneys into the new. They had to reposition the bladder so that it could all fit. So all of this had happened in that 12 hours. So what started off as just exploration of the kidney turned into that whole thing. Wow. Um, so I come out of theatre now. Isn't you know, medicine the recovery, amazing? Completely. Amazing. Um, yeah, come out of theatre, recovery, out of anaesthetic, and I can't feel my right leg now. And I'm like, really? That's panic kicks in yeah. now. Because the biggest panic for me wasn't even the fact I can't walk, is I can't have my grandparents pushing me in a wheelchair. That's what my first thought was. So you had no... Um... Did you have any sense sensation at all in that leg? No. None. No. So complete paraly- par- paralysis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, what's the hell? I said, you need to do something. I need to walk out of here unaided. I don't care how long it takes. And obviously they were panicking because they don't know if I'm going to get mobility back or not. Mm. You know, they can do the test, all the tests under the sun. But had they nicked a nerve or spinal? Basically it was... Um, yeah, you know, severing a couple of nerves in the t- uh, transversal dominus again because they've got to open it all up. Um, but, yeah, they assigned me a physiotherapy. I was doing it round the clock, one in the morning, two in the morning, you name it. I was Determined, yeah. So on it because the thought of my grandparents looking after me, well, not because it's about me looking after them, it's that age, but they're older. Like, they're not, they're not supposed to be pushing me around in a wheelchair. If anything, I'm the one supposed to be pushing them in a wheelchair or whatever, right? Like, and I'm not going with crutches and I just, no, I'm walking out of that ward. So it took me three weeks. Uh, So I managed to walk to the bathroom and back and then to the end of the ward and back. So like I was doing things. So three weeks I was, after three weeks I managed to go home. Uh, Things started to feel a bit more stable in respect. I started to feel, okay, this is cool. And then was quite sick again um, in that I couldn't breathe properly a lot. So they suspected I might have had TB, but it wasn't. It's basically like a really bad chest infection, which 
has damaged about 25% of my left lungs. Uh, like left a lot of scarring. So I was put into isolation. I was treated for antibi- uh, with antibiotics where no one could come and visit me. So I was in this little room. In a bubble. Recovering. In a bubble. Six weeks now. So it's like... It's intense. It was tough. I come back out. It was now my 30th birthday. It's July. So where I had plans to do a big party, obviously I couldn't. I was quite sick. And then I went to Leicester, like a city here. Just a couple of friends. Just went out, you know, it's a nice weekend, bit of drinking, that kind of thing. I literally had about two or three drinks, but I didn't feel right. But that's because I just didn't feel right in sense I was coughing quite a lot. And then comes clinic day on Monday. And they're like, oh you're here, you're standing. And I was a bit like, how do they know how much I drank? Because I felt a bit hangover-ish. And I just thought I was hungover. And it's not until they went, I go, what do you mean? Of course I'm standing. They go, no, we need to rush you into isolation. I was like, what, for being drunk? Because I'm a bit like, am I being punished for being a bit drunk? You know, because that's the concept I had in my head. They go, no, 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 no. You've not got any white blood cells. I was like, Oh, okay, as in what does that mean? Thanks for telling me. I went out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I didn't know what not having white blood cells really meant, as in I know it's all about the infection and, you know, all of that. Immune but system, yeah. Immune system, yes. But I was like, okay, but for being drunk, like surely that wouldn't have impacted it. But bearing in mind the blood test was done before, they go, yeah, well, whatever it is, we need to check. Anyway put into isolation so obviously not even had time to get clothes or nothing I couldn't have visitors a bit like the COVID situation everyone in full gear when they come to visit me so no family but all the nurses and doctors and it's at this point the doctors literally were like we don't know what to do because everything that was happening even they were exhausted as in what do we do so you know that medicine label one in 500 may experience headache, one in 10,000. I was that one in 200,000 that this was happening to. They hadn't seen this since their training at renal, when they were doing the renal training. So it wasn't something they experienced in real life as a patient, So what for a patient. But what was going on? Was it just a side effect of everything or was it re- you were reacting so to the medication? Reacted, yeah, I reacted to one medication, which was a immunosuppressant. Mm-hmm. So as part of the transplant, because every time they took me off, things were okay, but something else was happening. Mm-hmm. So they had to put me back on it. But this time they were literally like, okay, we've taken it out. We don't know if you're going to recover from this or not. Yeah. And or reject the kidney now. Yes. So that was a big part. So now everything was up in the air mm-hmm. and I could see the grave look on their faces, but you know, they're obviously trying to be optimistic. I get it. And that's when I had my last rites read. But I felt fine. I felt the weird part in all of this was, but I'm okay, guys. I don't get what the fuss is. I didn't feel ill. So hang on a minute. Did When you're saying I'm okay, guys, did they, you obviously had to agree to have your last rites read to you. Yeah. So you were aware of how serious it was. Yeah, at this point I'm like, Last rites is when someone's going to die. Mm. 
Am I dying? But I feel fine. Surely if you're dying, you shouldn't be feeling fine. This is the kind actually, of conversation I had in my head. But did they actually say to you, you are dying? No. They go, just in case we don't know what's going to happen from here. Because it's all trial and error now. Yeah. It's At this point, it's all up in the air. Because they also were at the stage, we really don't know what to do. What's going through your mind when, how are you feeling when that priest comes in and starts reading your last rites to you? My only thing was, is like, I was just too scared to tell my family. So your family um, didn't even know how sick you were? No. No one knew how sick I was. Um. So my thing was, I was more embarrassed. Sounds really weird now, but I was embarrassed thinking, Come on, T, like, really, you're going to die like this? Really? Okay, cool. I've been Fine. through if I am... so much and now this is going to take me out, yeah. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I couldn't tell my family. And it's only when I started to do my talks later on in life that I've actually told them. So can you imagine how long I've also held that in as well? Yeah. Um, not out of anything else, it's just it was forgotten as well. But partly it was like, why do I need to tell them now? Like, why would I upset them now? But that's the reality of what happened. Um, because again, look, the doctors, like I said, I was fine. You know, I'm like, not now. Obviously, I was more sicker than now. But I was fine. I go, guys, it's just a hangover. Like, honestly, like, that's how I felt. Um, I could still walk and go to the bathroom like for me that's feeling good you know um yeah so when they're telling me I was like yeah yeah I, I was very blasé when they were reading out to be fair to be fair I would just be like okay just get it over and done with okay thanks great I'm noticing yeah, I'm noticing yeah. that a, as a coping mechanism a lot through your story you, you saying the words I was quite blasé yep very much that yeah and I I don't know whether or not it was blasé or a purposeful subcon like a subconscious totally dis- yeah. yeah disassociation yeah cuz I, I now know it was faith internal faith internal spirit that was far greater than anything I didn't know it at the time obviously cuz 10 what do I know about faith and spirituality and strength and that but I know it's that essence that's the essence of who I am has got me through that. And that's why I've always said, I've always seen things as no big deal. Oh, is that it? You know, again, very blasé. But that's because it was preparing me for something a lot bigger. Um, so, yeah, when they read the last rites, it's all done. And then obviously my, my white blood cells are starting to pick up now. And it took almost about a week and a half. But I could see every time they'd come and visit me, ward round, it's that whole thing about, I'm so sorry, we don't know what else to do for you. And I'm like, it's I cool. I totally don't know what to do next. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just like, it's cool. What else is going on? How well, what's my this marker? Because I was at this stage, I'm very aware of my bloods and all the terminology. I was keeping it normal to pacify them. Mm. Sounds weird. But I've done that my whole life. Mm. To make mm. other people feel okay, I've took the brunt end of the joke and done it that way. So, so how is the creatine level? What's going on with this marker? And they're like, 
and they're engaging in that convo with me just so I don't have to feel their uncomfortable feeling. Mm. Um, so yeah, and then obviously like so the white blood cells were coming up and I was starting to feel better, whatever that was. And then slowly I was able to go back into the main ward. And then, yeah, then I was discharged, but lots of other little, little things were happening. But that was the big key thing that was thing. And then I had lots of infections. So pretty much 2009, I was in the hospital most of the time. Uh, then infections were happening. So every every year after, twice a year, I was in hospital, treated for something. Very unsettling. And then I was on prophylactic antibiotics for four or five years. Then I came off them because I was always getting a urine infection, chest infection. It was just almost part and parcel. But what also happened in that time was my mindset had changed quite a lot. So after the whole white blood cell saga, <laughs> um, I was you in You mean hospital. near death experience? Basically, yeah, that one. Last yeah. Rise, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> um, I was in the ward and, you know, anyone who's been in wards and at night it's a bit weird because it's eerie and machines are going off and people sleep and can't sleep and in pain. And all I saw was an image of uh, Lord Krishna. So for those who don't know, it's a Hindu deity. Um, and I grew up being a Hindu, as in that's my background, family background, um, but... It was not something I practiced. It wasn't a religion I practiced, but I was very aware. Now, this image came to me as, it, as if it was a person in front of me. Now, being with loads of medication, I, I literally thought I was hallucinating. But I looked around the ward just thinking, can anyone else see him? You know, like it was very clear. Like, like you know, somebody standing next to you. Very, very clear. And I was a bit like, what on earth is going on, mate? My mind is like weird at this stage now. And then I, all I heard, the words were, surrender onto me what you cannot control. So I, at this point, I'm literally out of my skin going, what the actual hell? What what kind of words are those? That's not something I could come up with. It's not, I didn't conjure those words. I don't even know what it means. Surrender onto me what you cannot control. And I was a bit like, mate, that is nuts. Like I said, the hallucination was next level. And then, obviously, those words have been very powerful to me now. Mm. It's not something that happens overnight, of course, but I started to t try to be more kind to myself because I kept blaming myself every time I got admitted into hospital. Maybe it's that extra packet of crisp I've ate. Maybe it's that 200 milliliters of less water I drank than I should have, you know, whatever constant scrutiny constant on top of all the other judgment that was coming at me oh why are you always in hospital can't you even look after yourself that constantly so always blaming myself for ending up in hospital but then this was and like the doctors always said even we don't know what's going on an extra packet of crisp is not going to bring you back to hospital it's not that they made me understand on a cellular level what your body's doing to what we want it to do are two different things. And that's when I started to understand about control. Surrender onto me what you can't. So it's almost like 
give your pain to me. Let me take care of your pain and you just focus on you. It's almost kind of how I read it as. Um, and that's kind of where I am now in respect of surrendering. Like I don't, I'm not hard on myself like I would have been before. I know what my, my, what my, I want my body to do compared to what it's going to do is two different things. Mm. It's like me and you now, you know, we share pizza from the same box, but how your body's going to react to it, to mine, is going to be very different. Mm. But the pizza's still the same. Do you know what I mean? So I started to understand life from a very different perspective. In the midst of that is where my confidence now was going to start growing. So this is now 10 years ago where I met the Katie Piper Foundation. What is the Katie Piper Foundation? So um, have you heard of Katie Piper? She is a young woman here in the UK uh, who's a burn survivor. Mm -hmm. So she, uh, hers was acid attack. So a young woman, you know, and this happened to her, but she used that experience and put herself out there. So here in the UK, she had a program uh, called Katie and Friends. And I happened to see that documentary on TV and I was like, oh, wow, there's someone who looks like me out there. As in, she's in the media. She I doesn't did, need to hide herself. I haven't heard of her specifically. I did. We did hear that there was a spate of acid attacks in London a while ago. Um, yeah. I don't know why. It's such a sick thing to do. Um, completely. And they seem to be completely random as well, like just horrific. Anyway. Some of these are horrendous. Mm. Yes, this is something she had and hers was, uh, I can't remember specifically, around about the year 2009, maybe give and take, you know, around then. It, so, Is there anything from a clinical standpoint, is there any difference towards how a chemical burn reacts to the skin compared to a, a heat burn? Yeah, there are differences. In terms of post-treatment, it will look the same because in respect of skin grafting, Mm -hmm. but the damage can be a lot more intense because, you know, depending on where the acid is thrown, like, I mean, obviously I don't want to, like, talk about Katie's story in that respect, but hers damaged her esophagus, so you can imagine her lungs, her breathing. Uh, If if you swallowed it, you can imagine the insides, you know, it's not Horrific, horrific. Horrific, so... You know, loss of vision, uh, more limbs, so different. Um, and, you know, the, the pa- impact is different. It's something's thrown at you. Someone maliciously wants to hurt you. Mm. Whereas in my case, just my case, I can't talk about everyone else, but mine was an accident. accident you know, yeah. it wasn't Malicious. very different. Yeah, d- d- different in terms so- of how you would process it and deal with it sure like she would so like she would be more cautious of leaving her house on the basis can it happen again and watching your back mine would be more i don't want to face the world because Mm. the way i look you know they'll have that too but it's a different feeling so yeah like when i saw her program suddenly i was like not because i thought i was the only one but wow someone she's so beautiful like really beautiful. Look at her. She's doing positive things. She's a positive person. She's a young woman. Obviously, at that point, I'm a young woman. Wow. So I contact the charity just to say, you know, thank you so much for the show. If there's ever anything I can do to help, 
here I am. Yeah. They got back to me and they said, look, we do these uh, um, social events. We'd love to invite you. I went to one. Uh, so I still have this fake confidence at this point, you know. Um, and we went to one. I got to see Katie. And what was really nice was we didn't have to talk about our burns. It wasn't about our burns. Yeah. It was just two young women talking about fashion and life. And that's when it got refreshing for me. It was like, I don't have to talk about my burns. I'm more than that. And then I got to interact more with the charity. I ended up, became a volunteer. I now got to meet more peers with burns in various parts, you know, not just always about the face, different parts of the body. And I could now see the beauty that people saw in me I, because I could see it in them. I used to now come home and go, Oh, I like that burn scar. Oh, I like that scar. I like the texture. So suddenly I could start seeing myself beautiful. Was prior to that I couldn't. So my confidence changing again slightly. Not massive, don't get me wrong, it's not it's not overnight. And then time's gone on. I've gone on to do a catwalk show with Katie. Check and you out, you sexy other... beast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And I love the camera. The irony was I used to love the camera, but I never felt good enough to be a model, let's say, because I didn't fit the stereotype. This yeah. is now not just me feeling. This is women across the world, right? Yeah, definitely. All right, so it's our size, our weight, our color, blah, 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 the whole list. So here comes this opportunity, doing this catwalk, um, me with some seven seven other inspirational women, all different walks of life, me being five foot nothing, one of the requirements was swimwear. It's like, yeah, they wanted me in a bikini. Five foot nothing. I was in the front, obviously, here for the whole world to see. First few times I was like, whoa, what on earth? It was like way out of my comfort zone. And then by the ninth show, it's like I've got nothing to hide. So my confidence just keeps had grown more from then onwards to the point now I have full body confidence whereby – and I say this is, I am my own version of beautiful. Mm. I'm not the world's, which means I've got no pressure to live up to. Well, I think no, I think nobody can live up to the world's expectations of beauty. I mean, even the super, even supermodels get picked apart in regards to what they look like, or for sure, you know, gosh, it's just impossible. It's relentless, it, isn't it? It's relentless, and it's impossible, and it's just. <sighs> I don't know how young women do it now in terms of the social media. Um, yeah. And I know that there is in terms of boys and men in terms of the um, uh, body shaming and, and so forth, but I still think that women have it significantly worse in terms of societal For expectations sure. in regards to how we look. For sure. And so that's when I was like, so I've taken it all back now. Uh I obviously I do know that that formity exists existed and was lots of negative narratives were going through her head, but to where I am now is just stark difference. That's amazing, and it's not something I ever ever imagined would happen. To be fair, uh, I didn't know I would ever come out of this vicious cycle of feeling self loathing and hate. And but you're also doing public speaking now as well. 
yeah, and that's what I do now. And so even as time has gone on, you know, the way I talk now has changed mm. from my first talk to now. Now I can give that guidance, that empowerment, that encouragement. And so even when I started back in 2014 to now, that's changed. So, and again, with the storytelling, I never really talked about my story prior to that. You know, a handful of people knew what I'd gone through. Because again, culturally, it was like one of those, well, you've been through it, what's it to talk about? It's a very British and, stiff upper lip, isn't it? As well, and then in a South Asian culture, to be fair, as well. So, um, yeah, and then when I started sharing, I got standing ovations, and it's a bit like, what? For surviving a plane crash, you're all standing up and applauding me. Why? You know, I couldn't get it. I get it now, obviously, but it was like, okay. And then when I had the time frame to add in my kidney stuff, you can people going, so on top of a plane crash, you went through that? Oh, my God. And, you <laughs> know, it's like. <laughs> have you had a chance so, to sort of sit down and go through everything with your grandparents in regards to the crash and sort of the adolescence and and the kidney stuff have you ever sort of sat down and sort of had an open conversation with your grandparents no so I mean my my grandma passed away what 12 10 12 years ago so but my granddad you know I still live with him no because it's one of those things we don't talk about Mm. uh, as in I can throw bits into conversation but it's not I can't have a sit down because even now he still struggles to talk about my dad so sometimes I'll ask him, so what was my dad like when he was a teenager? Or So he'll, he'll say something and then he'll quickly go into the kitchen, busy himself. He's still dealing with his grief. Exactly that. So, um, But what, what's been really beautiful, particularly lockdown, I might have just asked a random question, like when did my dad pass his driving test? Just something very random. And he'll tell me. And then one morning I came down and there was a photo album I haven't seen this album, so I have no idea where it was. And it's all, like pretty much all the pictures of my dad and him growing up. And it was just on my sofa, so where I sit. He said nothing. He wasn't like, oh, here. But it was his way of saying, like, you can look at the pictures, but we're not going to really talk about it. Um, But every now and again, we'll do something. And he'll say, your dad used to do that when he was 15. I remember when your dad used to do that when he was 22. So it, I let him have his space to, to, to do that. But because I hold space for him, I always just say thank you rather than probing him more. Um, and my mum's side, like my mum's sister, the one who's really, who was the most closest to my mum, it's nice because she can talk about my mum and I can ask her questions. I knew my mum as my mum. Mm. I didn't know my mum as anything else but when I do certain things like I'm very outspoken and I'll fight for justice my auntie will always laugh and she just goes it's like my sister's still here you are literally her that's lovely you know, very yeah fighting for some sort of injustice not accepting things going no it's not going to be that way it's going to it's surely there's a different way I didn't know that about her obviously because she was just my mom taking care of things as a for a 10-year-old child, but that spirit that she had is what I have. It's amazing. And and so, and so even with my dad, there's certain things 
my gramps tells me and I'm like, wow, I've got that from him. That's so cool. <laughs> so it's, it's really nice. I can piece things together without, without me sitting there and asking him. He's telling me certain things, mm. which is just nice. Tulsi, we're nearly two hours in. Where can I, it's I, not. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you? So on Instagram, I'm Tulsi Divine 108. And on Facebook, I am Tulsi Vagjiani. Um, I've also got a website. So www.tulsivagjiani.com. And is that how the website the best place to contact you for the speaking gigs? Yes. Uh, yeah. You could just message me on there. Uh, but you can always private message me as well, so it's not a problem. Perfect. Thanks, honey. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.